What an interesting story. It's not a story you hear every day. Um, you may have heard stories um, about young children who heard things or tried to hear things. Um, I, I know of one story of uh, a young boy in South Florida who in 1974, 75, 76, several nights a week used to go to a old transistor radio. You know, most of you don't even know what that is, but it's, a, it's an old radio. And uh, would tune into an AM radio station that was broadcasting out of Louisville, Kentucky, a thousand miles away. And on a clear night, that young boy could tune the dial just right, move through the static a bit, and hear the inimitable voice of the Kentucky Colonels, Van Vance. That was his name. This young fellow was fascinated with the Kentucky Colonels because his grandparents lived in that town. He recorded every game, had a notebook in which all the great players' names were recorded and the points scored in each night were recorded in that notebook. It was the ABA, American Basketball Association. Um, some of the great players on that team were Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel, Louis Dampier. You all have blank faces. Yes, a few of you. They were always in a battle with the Indiana Pacers. And this young boy was fascinated uh, with that battle. You might expect um, that young boy was me. Grew up in South Florida, grandparents in Louisville, Kentucky Colonels were my team. I still had that notebook. It, it survived all these years. My mother has it, I think. She may have given it to one of my nephews who is sort of an archivist when it comes to basketball. He loves statistics about old basketball players, especially the ABA, which, by the way, influenced the NBA tremendously and made it a much better league. The three-point shot, the ABA invented that, brought it to the league. The shot clock worked as it was, they did that. It was a wonderful era, and I used to tune my radio dial ever so carefully to hear the voice of Van Vance. Have you ever wondered what it takes to tune your dial to the voice of God? I think we have a story like that here. A story of a young boy, Samuel, who might not have been more than 10 or 11 years old. Who knows? A young boy who had served as a mentor under Eli, the chief prophet and priest and judge in Israel. He did his duties well. He followed what Eli taught him to do. But it says in this text that we just read, in spite of all the religious activities that Samuel was involved in, he had not heard from the Lord. Nor, the text says, was a word from the Lord very common. It was really uncommon. In other words, nobody was hearing. There were prophets Eli was one of them. 
and we surmise, he was just going through the motions. He was hearing nothing. So on this occasion, as the story reads, this young boy, Eli, is asleep in bed or trying to go to sleep at night and hears a voice and three times he goes to Eli and he says, Eli, are you calling me? Eli says, no, go back to bed. You know, the first time, uh, he probably is just irritated. The kid woke him up, maybe. Um, but eventually, by the third time, Eli says, oh, my, something's going on. May I insert, I haven't heard from the Lord. Matter of fact, hardly anybody has. This is God's voice. So the fourth time, third time he comes to Eli and tells him that, Eli says, go back to bed. Samuel, when you hear that voice again, I want you to say, speak, Lord, for your servant's listening. Can you imagine the fear that must have overcome Samuel when he heard those words? I mean, I would have been trembling as a child. Going back to bed, thinking that God, who's invisible, the creator of everything, was speaking audibly to me? He goes and lays down, and I can imagine just lays stone still, not wanting to move. I've been there before as a child, just because I was afraid. And he hears the voice again, and though the text doesn't tell us this, I can imagine him saying, speak, speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. And God spoke to him. He said, Samuel, I've got some news for you that's going to make the ears of all Israel tingle. It's going to be sensational. It's going to shake everything up. And basically the news was this, I'm going to judge Eli's house. Eli's house is out of control. They'll never be in the priesthood again. As a matter of fact, they're going to be punished severely. Samuel took that word. But if you were listening as the text was read, there was a reference in the text that said, I will judge Eli's family just as I said I would. Actually, the just as I said I would precedes this chapter. In the chapter just before this, we hear this account. A man of God, unnamed, nobody knows who he is. A man of God, unnamed, came to Eli, and he said to Eli, you better clean up your house. In effect, you're the priest before God in Shiloh for Israel, and your sons are out of control. As a matter of fact, the sons have been taking the best meat in the sacrifice, stealing it, as it were, from the feast. But worse than that, which is an abomination in itself, taking the sacrifice of God and not letting the people eat the best of the meat. Besides that, they were sleeping with all the women who served at the temple. They created in the priesthood their own harem. And the prophet says to Eli, you better get your house in order or God's going to judge you. That chapter tells us that Eli went to his sons and said to them, my sons, what is this I hear about you? Matter of fact, everybody knows about it, sons. The whole nation of Israel knows and everybody's talking why do you shame Israel this way? What, in effect, why are you shaming me this way? They completely ignore him and go about their wicked ways. But you see, that's not really the important part of the story. 
Wickedness does exist, and people who are determined to be wicked will be wicked. It was Eli's responsibility to stop it, and he did nothing. He had the authority. He could have taken them out of the priesthood. He could have blocked them from the temple. He could have done anything he wanted, but he did nothing. And Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, continued this evil. Now, what happens after this chapter that we just read is that the judgment of God does come. The people of Israel had gone out to fight against their enemies, the Philistines. And in a battle with their enemies, they were routed. 4,000 of their people were killed. And they retreated and came back to Shiloh, crying out, what is going on? Where is God in the midst of this? What have we done? The elders of Israel said, well, we don't know, but we've got an idea. Here's what we think you ought to do, military leaders. We think you ought to go into the temple and take the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle with you. Here, soldiers of Israel, based on our authority, we want you to try to manipulate God. Take the Ark of the Covenant. Make it a good luck charm. Surely you'll win your battles. They took the Ark of the Covenant along with Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, into battle. And when the Philistines heard that the Ark of the Covenant was with the people of Israel, the text says they just shook. They said the Ark of the Covenant, the demonstration of the power of Almighty God for Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, the God who defeated Egypt and divided the Red Sea and did one miracle after another, the commanders of the Philistines said, men, fight for your lives. And they did. And they destroyed the army of Israel. And they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were killed. In that day, you didn't get things through CNN or some other news broadcast. You sent runners back home. And a runner was commissioned to go back with the bad news to Shiloh. As he entered the town, he began to tell the story, and the town was in an uproar. And Eli, who was virtually blind at this point, could hear the uproar in the town. And when the runner reached him, he said, what is all the commotion about? And the runner told him the story. He said, our people have been defeated in battle. And your sons were killed. And the ark of God has been captured. When Eli heard those words, the ark of God had been captured, he fell over in a dead faint. The text said he was very old and very heavy. He fell off his chair, a rock, and his neck snapped and he died. That's what Samuel was supposed to deliver without the details to Eli. I can't imagine being that young boy waking up the next day, but he did. Apparently, trying to avoid Eli, not wanting to tell him. And Eli said, tell me what's going to happen. What did God say? And Samuel told him the story before the events had transpired. And Eli said, well, God is God. Let him do what he will do. He's good. And God did. I wonder about this story and um, what the deep 
embedded lessons are in it. The first one that comes to mind is just so obvious. God judges wickedness. He does. Frequently, he judges wickedness in this present life. But even when you do not see the judgment of God against wickedness right here, right now, God's judgment is much wider than today and much wider than the finite perspective of human history. Because God, in the end, will judge all wickedness. I say that with that emphasis because it's not very popular to speak about God's judgment. And numerous contemporary Christian authors want to suggest that it's not going to happen. I want to tell you, my friends, everything about this text says otherwise. I don't know the details. I don't know when. But God is going to finally judge wickedness. It will happen. And if we try to extract it from our Christian doctrine, we've weakened the truth of God. The Ark of the Covenant is the people of Israel trying to manipulate God. And God says, instead, I'll judge wickedness. There's something else that's obvious to me, at least in this text, and it is that the Word of God comes to those who are ready to hear it. Or to put it another way, it seems that according to the text, the Word of God, the Word of the Lord is scarce because wickedness is so thick. It's like a dense fog, a dense fog that interrupts the messages of God if, in fact, He were sending them. Or perhaps such a dense fog that God steps back and says, though I could, I won't. I will let wickedness go on and on and on. The worst kind of punishment to turn you over to your own wickedness. But in the midst of this dense fog of wickedness, there are some people who are ready and prepared to hear the voice of God. That unnamed prophet heard it and Samuel heard it. Samuel, in particular, a young man who, really, he wasn't ready to receive it. He was too young for this big responsibility. He didn't ask for it. He didn't relish in it. He didn't run out and try to do something with it. But he was ready. Why was he ready? Perhaps because he prepared Perhaps because he lived before God as a servant. Perhaps because faithfully, day after day, as we know concerning the life of Samuel, he just served God. And so, God came to his servant, Samuel, who was, well, relatively powerless compared to those around him, a faithful servant. So, God judges wickedness. Don't ever forget it. 
And God communicates his word to those who are ready to hear. The third thing I notice uh, about this communicating his word to those who are ready to hear is, is not in the text. It's an application for today. Anybody hear anything last night while you were sleeping? Don't raise your hand. It'll mess up my sermon. Um, you probably didn't, right? You probably weren't awakened in the night with an audible voice that said, Bob, God speaking. It could happen, but it probably didn't. You could surmise that the reason it didn't happen is because the word of the Lord is rare, but I don't think that's an appropriate understanding of why you didn't hear the audible voice of God. I think, and this may seem like I don't care about the text, but I do, I think it's because that was then and this is now. What I mean is that was then when prophets heard the word of God on behalf of the people. And the people routinely stood around waiting to hear the voice of God through a particular prophet. And what we know in the New Testament era is things really have changed. At the beginning of the book of Acts, when Pentecost breaks loose on the horizon, Peter stands up when all these people are receiving the word of the Lord in various tongues, spoken by the apostles who didn't know the language But inspired by God, they spoke in that language. And Peter says, you know what's happening here? What's happening is the prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. What's happening is this. Joel said a long time ago that in the future, your young sons and your daughters will prophesy. In other words, sons and daughters is everybody. Sons and daughters is not just that prophet and this prophet, but all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will have dreams. And on my servant, both men and women, this is widespread, says the prophet. I'll pour out my spirit in those days. In the new dispensation of grace in the New Testament, there is some sense in which everyone is a prophet. Now, I don't mean that in a literal sense, that it's your job to be a Samuel. What I mean is that God speaks through his people in a broad, expansive way, and in a variety of ways, through a variety of sources, through a variety of voices. That's the new era. There's something else about the Word of God today that's different. Not only is it diverse in terms of its multiple voices, the way God communicates, but also it comes to us in a way that it never came to the prophets of old in this Word. Now, I'm not suggesting that Samuel knew nothing of the Torah, but depending on the era of the prophet or the judge, They may know very little about the Torah. And even if they did, it wasn't the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. In this era, we have in our hands the Word of God. 
we have in our possession the voice of God. That's what the church has always held to and made unequivocally clear. This is the voice of God. It's the written and the living Word of God. I mentioned that for a point of emphasis because it's easy for us to forget it. It's easy for us to forget the power of the Word of God, that it's sharp and it's powerful. I read this week of a, a young man in World War I, a long-forgotten war and our way of analyzing wars. It was a hideous war, gigantic, widespread. The first major war that had real trench warfare. I mean sophisticated lines of troops who advanced a little bit at a time. This young man was a student of philosophy in the university before he was sent to the front lines in France. And while on the front lines, in the trenches, day after day, he became not only frightened but disillusioned. Disillusioned by the meaning of life. He watched it disappear all around him. He watched the blood and the death that was so prominent. He recalls on one occasion talking to his friend, and in the middle of a story that his friend was telling about his mother, he was shot and dropped dead at his feet. And he was overwhelmed by the short, meaningless nature of life in the midst of war. He himself was... Uh, Wounded, not fatally, but wounded. An American ambulance picked him up and rescued him. And after seven months of recovery, he was sent back home. When he returned home, he said uh, he put himself back into his books. Combing through his works of philosophy, uh, a person who loved literature, and he said, while I was in those foxholes, during the long watches of the night, I had a strange longing, a strange longing that began to emerge. I'd studied lots of literature, but I was looking for a book that would understand me. Understand me? He said, after I was released uh, from the war, I returned to my studies, and I worked very hard. And I took all the books and the inspiration that I could derive from all these books of philosophy, and I began to combine them with others and put together my own book that I carried with me everywhere I went, copying great sayings from philosophers and poets and putting them together in my own book. It was a book, he said, that was going to understand me. He said he'll never forget the day, bright sunny day, 
that he got out his book, it was finished, and he opened it up and started reading the words, and he was overwhelmed with sadness. He said, they had no meaning. They weren't speaking to me like I thought they would. On that same day, his wife discovered a Bible. As a matter of fact, this young man had gone to the university, and it's remarkable to think of this, but he had committed himself to not studying any religion at all. Remarkable at the turn of the century that a man like him could never have read the Bible at all. As a matter of fact, he says he had never seen one. He came back home and his wife had this Bible and he said, I took it that night and began to read it. His words are these, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read. Now out loud with an indescribable warmth surging within me. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly, the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that understood me. I needed it so much, yet I was so unaware. I'd attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, when I read this phrase, I I felt a tingle go up my spine. Lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one whom they spoke of, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive in me, The power of the Spirit in the written Word of God. That night, this young man prayed, and the same God who'd spoken in the Bible answered him. I um, tell you that story because... I'm concerned. I'm concerned about our generation. The most literate generation in the world. And the growing biblical illiteracy that is a part of our generation. I know I grew up in a different era. I know my culture was entirely different. I lived in a Christian home. But there was just an expectation, an understanding that the Word of God should be consumed, should be memorized, should be hidden in your heart. And I fear that that expectation and that understanding is fleeing to the edges in our world. Not just the larger world, but in the church. 
This word of God is living and powerful. It has defined the church since the beginning. And in it, the Spirit lives and breathes and moves and transforms human beings. And if that's true, we can't neglect it. We can't spend all our time speaking about our own story and our own version of God. We've got to get into the story about God. And let this story transform our story. Because the Word of God, at its very essence, is not just information, it's transformation. The Word of God comes to us not just to tell us something, but to change us. And if we allow it, it will change us. If we give ourselves to it, submit to it, love it, pour over it. I, I want to give you a suggestion in closing, and I don't want it to sound all authoritative and everything, but I really wish... I wish you would take it as maybe a word from God, okay? And, and it's really simple. Tomorrow on Monday, change your life forever. This is the way I suggest you change it. At the beginning of your day, before you do anything else, I don't care if you're a morning person or not, before you do anything else, read the Word of God. Read it. And when you're finished reading it, do something that you and I routinely do not do. Just be quiet. Don't say a word. Just sit in silence and let it soak in. You might say, well, I'm not real good at silence. I know that. We're not. That's why the words of T.S. Eliot are so stirring. When he said, where shall the world be found? Where would the word resound? Not here. There's not enough silence. My suggestion is to read it and then be silent. And what I mean by that is not just complete passivity, I mean silence as the beginning of and a form of prayer. Soren Kierkegaard once said that a man prayed and at first he thought that praying was talking. But he became more and more quiet and realized that prayer is listening. So read it. Be silent and pray. And then, when you receive a word from God, when something grips your heart, let me suggest that you don't jump into a prophecy complex where you run out shouting, I got a word of God for everybody. Did you see Samuel doing that? No. He was scared to the end of his feet and the sole of his head. God had given him something and it was going to tingle the ears of all of Israel and he didn't want to say a thing. He was scared to death. 
Sometimes when we move into this revelation of God and His Word, we become, well, just like people who think we've got all the answers. I'm not suggesting we do that, okay? What I'm suggesting is we read the Word, then we fall in silence and prayer, listen for the Word to penetrate our hearts, and then we quietly receive it, allow it to transform us. After all, 99% of the time, that's what it's for. And then, with that revelation, share it with others in order to bless the world. My friends, if we do that, there's no telling what will happen. Not if we're serious about it. I mean, I can't imagine if all of you left this place and did that every day of the week and made it your objective somewhere in the week to share the blessing how your world would change. It's pretty simple. But why not do it? God gave us the word not to just inform, but to transform. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. Um, we thank you for the variety of ways it has come to your people throughout history, for the prophets, for the original revelation of the word, for the writing of the word, for the mass distribution of the word, for the accessibility now of the word. And for the power of the word which comes through your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to consume that word. As one of your prophets said, like eating a scroll. Take it in like food that nourishes us. And then, Lord, let us be quiet in prayer to listen. And then let us, with the word that has been revealed... Bless our world. We thank you that you're the God of the universe. We understand that you will judge wickedness. And we pray that we will not be found among the wicked because you will allow us to take in the words of Scripture and the psalm and really make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and share that light with others. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand up.